Hello and welcome. Angela joins me today for another one of our Singella sessions, as we call them, where we dive deep into either a title associated with um, ancient faces of the goddess or explore a whole goddess. So today we are doing Propylaea, which is a title of the goddess that is really fascinating, but I also find it's it's you can kind of connect to it like in an intuitive way, like Propylaea, the gate. She's also the gatekeeper and the keeper of keys. So intuitively, a lot of us are drawn to that aspect of like, so let's say Hecate is being like, she's the gatekeeper um, and also the keeper of the keys. But then to articulate like what that means to us, to try to pull that into a more intellectual discussion, I have found this over the years to be really challenging. And it's interesting because I, of course, called my, or, well, what's become now an organization, but was years ago just a little blog, uh, Keeping Her Keys. And that, I think that's like Propylaea or Clydocus, like these titles of Hecate. It's like there is magic, there is mystery in it. But every once in a while, it just happened recently, someone will be like, what do you call it keeping her keys but people really love keeping her keys like it was even like when it first came out it got an award for being like the best pagan witchy blog title of the year but it's like what does it actually mean so we're going to go in deep with Propylaea, the gate the gatekeeper the membrane the threshold um and this is really a continuation of Anodia, the road goddess, which we did last month. So if you think of like that metaphor, like one aspect of Hecate is this road goddess that she's going to see through the roads. And then there was another ancient um, appellation called Propylaea, which meant big, big fancy gate, but also meant that she is like the gate itself. Mm -hmm. um, so we're continuing from Anodia and we're coming to something new. We're coming to a threshold and something new. So, I don't know, this is really fascinating to me, obviously, yeah. being me, <laughs> I'm obviously quite enchanted by this whole business of the different titles of Hecate, and like, what do they actually, like, what do they mean? Like, why are we so drawn to that? So we're going to talk about the history, and what we think um, some of the reasons might be that we're so drawn to the energy of like thresholds and gates. Um, so just uh, get, brew a cup of something. We're doing bees this month. So maybe get some tea with some honey in it. Get your notebook and get comfy because uh, here we go. Angela is joining us from Italy where it is a heat wave. Mm -hmm. And I am from breezy coastal Nova Scotia. So I'm just gonna start by trying it. We do have heat warnings here. But on the open Atlantic Ocean like this, like our heat warnings are different. Yeah. yeah. You get a little bit more relief. Yeah, we get relief. Like it's it's foggy, humid, hot here, which is a weird combination. But so I'm going to send some of that like across the Atlantic and you can just hopefully get a little bit cooler. <laughs> I was telling Cindy earlier that I went to the lake today and there were all these planes flying really low and they were very cute and charming. And somebody said, they're going to put out fires. <laughs> it's horrible. They were 
that's charming. Yeah. Our charming little planes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's get into Propylaea. It's the middle of summer. Everywhere it's hot. Um, cool off with us as we contemplate the gate. The gate. I did something. Start the slideshow. It's very cute. There we go. The gate. Okay. So it's like, where do we begin um, in talking about the ancient history about this business of like the idea that a goddess is basically a gate? Like, so she's gatekeeper, but she's also like the physical gate, like the gate itself. Um, and so I looked in this book, which is a really great resource for. Um, all, like just an overview of different religious practices in the ancient Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really important to the ancient Greeks was that the temple, like the different, like the structure of the temple. So there's the idea that the sanctuary, the temenos, was a special part of these temple complexes. And Temenos, of course, is a term that Carl Jung used to talk about like our internal reality. So Temenos is like a sacred space. And this sacred space would have been walled off or have, you know, uh, and then have some type of gate. And that in order to cross through these gates, you had to be, go through uh, rituals, like you had to do purification rituals. So I think for me, in thinking about like, in terms of the statues of Hecate that were Propylaea, that were part of these entrances to these temples, if we can just imagine what the experience would have been of someone approaching the Propylaea and maybe seeing a shrine to Hecate at this Propylaea, like what their experience would have been. I think that's really interesting mm -hmm. because I think like, in the Catholic Church, you're still supposed to do something like this, right? Like, I haven't been to a Catholic Mass for a long time, so I wouldn't be an expert. But, you know, like when you come into the sanctuary, you do, like, you cross yourself. Yeah, and, and you sometimes have the holy water in the basin. Right, so it's still, like, that idea that when you cross into a sanctuary, like a religious structure that's sacred space, that you're crossing from the everyday into something um, holy and that you do this through rituals and you know even to, like i said even today in the catholic church and i think other religions probably do this too mm -hmm. there's some kind of thing i grew up in the pentecostal church and we had none of that um you know you just like you just walked into the doors and got down to business um and so I've been thinking a lot about this, like this idea that in a lot of the world, like when we go into a building that is sacred to us, like we, we don't really have any rituals anymore or even an important building. Like, so for, you know, the, the idea of the Greeks and others in the ancient Mediterranean that 
you had to cleanse yourself. You had to, you were crossing through this membrane between one aspect of life and another one. In the terms of a temple, it was more sacred. Um, and that you had to cleanse yourself, at least in a ritualistic sense, even if you weren't 100% clean. You know what I mean? Like there was something energetically that prepared you for crossing through the gate into something more sacred. Yeah, you're making me think about the last time I was in San Francisco, my sister wanted to give me a tour of her work. So we were walking down the streets and I walked into the wrong building. I don't know why I assumed that this was her building. I just turned into a building and walked into it. And, uh, and she said, no, this is the wrong building. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, no, it's fine. Every building in San Francisco is public space. And I don't know why, but that just, that really struck me as really resonant because of this feeling that San Francisco has changed so much. And it's, it's now kind of designed for everyone to kind of have this tech experience. You know, there's something that's been sort of desacralized about even businesses in San Francisco that this makes me think about. But another thing that I was thinking about was, uh, you know, we talk about this a lot. The Greeks had multiple ideas of the soul mm -hmm. and this thing that we associate with consciousness now, this thing that we think is internal was external from the Greek perspective. So the material was naturally always spiritual, you know, talking about this, this crossing of thresholds, it was also crossing into another dimension and you had to physically perform the acts in order to purify yourself spiritually in preparation for this other place. I think that's so interesting. And I like how you mentioned San Francisco, because when I was reading this book, I was struck by the idea like so basically in society we had done away with all of these kind of purification rites. Yeah. Maybe accepting the Catholic Church and some other faiths. Um, Islam still does Islam, it. Like Islam still does it. But most of us who, you know, because we live in a world that is very secular, most of us don't have this experience that we have to purify ourselves in order to be suitable to be in a place. Except, of course, in the pandemic came. And, you know, what do we all do when we go into buildings now? Like we purify ourselves. We use hand sanitizer. And I also the convention of taking off your shoes when you enter somebody's house. That's a lot more common now. Right. That, yeah. So these we do, in a practical sense, have these little purification rituals when we cross a threshold, when we go through a gate. Hmm. Um, but I think because we live a life where we have where we don't have that kind of Greek understanding that we are operating on many different levels from the very mundane to the kind of deeper, even like ascended self um, that we we just see these things as well. We're just sanitizing our hands so we don't get germs Yeah. Um, or we're taking off our shoes because I don't want to ruin their carpets or but there is a deeper element to these things that we perform if we can attend to them. Yeah. And, you know, I think like, however you're engaging with the spirit of Propylaea this month, I would say, you know, begin with just being cognizant of when you're crossing one threshold to another and seeing thresholds, seeing gates, doorways as like spirits and places onto themselves and that they're every doorway we go through, like it represents a transition. 
Hmm. This also has a practical function, right? Like behavioral psychology has shown that not doing work inside your bed, like not bringing your computer into your bed helps you sleep better and helps you really sort of firmly associate that space with rest. So you can kind of think of any space in your house in these terms, like what is the space for and how do I designate it that way? Right, and when I cross that threshold, like when I go from office, in my case, to bedroom mm. and the different nature of what I do there. Now, if you live in like a one room situation, this is probably a little bit more challenging, but you can even start to set up like thresholds, like from the kitchen area to the eating area, to the relaxing area, to this, you know, like, and to kind of see all of these, like as parts of your, like your personal temple that you live in and what kind of rituals you might do to delineate the spaces that you go through. Yeah, or even like how you dress for them. Like uh, I'm sure that a lot of us who, who grew up in America have this memory of a Mr. Rogers neighborhood, right? And how he yeah. would enter the house and he would change his cardigan and change his shoes. Oh yeah. What a little ritual. I mean, I still do that. Like one of my threshold rituals when I come home is I get changed. Like if I've been um, out in the world doing like world things out in the, you know, out in the marketplace or wherever I, I will, I get changed before I leave. And then when I come home, part of my homecoming purification ritual is like, I get changed. First of all, the bras I wear out in public are not the bras I wear at home. You so home. what you wear bras at home? Well, home bras. Okay. I live with sons. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I live in a place, you know, where that someone can knock at the door without knowing. Speaking of thresholds. So I think there's a lot like if we just start to get bring into awareness of how we are already navigating thresholds, you know, because like, yes, this lofty thing of we're at Eleusis and we're doing like the great rites and, you know, we're going to do these purification rituals and kill the goat and, you know, do all this stuff before we go into the temple. See, like, yes, that is perhaps like the highest form of a propylaea kind of experience to cross those thresholds. But, you know, it's a continuum. And I think we need to have more of that perspective, you know, that more Greek perspective that, that what we do in the very mundane sense also stretches up into like the deeper etheric ascended self sense like there's always always right yes obviously you know going into the bathroom is not the same as going into a sacred temple to do a ritual but it's on a continuum um and i think that especially with hecate and her association with like um crossroads you know a lot of people do crossroads rituals and we've been talking about this in Covina and the, the keeping her keys book club and you know like people like I really do advocate for people like doing a nighttime crossroads ritual at least once it's intimidating and I think it's a really powerful experience it is like crossing a threshold into something else because for most people that's not something they would normally do so there's those kind of thresholds those gates we go to and it's just like breaking out of the kind of fears we have um there's that whole aspect to it too but at the same time hello in your house you if you live in a multi-room dwelling 
you have the house full of crossroads, right? You have the crossroads between the kitchen and the hall and upstairs and downstairs. Like there's just thresholds are all around us all the time. Yeah. So. Spaces of traffic. Yes, exactly. So start paying attention to those thresholds and the gates that you're always passing through. Back to ancient history. Um, (laughs) So this is from this wonderful German dissertation. I don't read German very well, and I don't think you do either, do you? Mm -hmm. So my efforts to translate this, which has not been published in English anywhere, um, are slow going, but it is a very juicy, juicy thesis about temples and especially Propylaea and has a lot to say about Hermes, our friend Hermes and Hecate, because the two of them were both uh, Propylaea and had a lot to do with thresholds. So let's just read this quote. As a gate goddess, Hecate was not only venerated at the stairway to the Athens Acropolis, but also in other Greek cities. In um, Selenante, Hecate was also on watch from a propylon. So a propylon like, is basically, you know, like this kind of thing or a little shelfy thing. Uh, mm-hmm. By the sanctuary of Demeter in Eleusis, Hecate owned a temple at the gates of the sanctuary on Rhodes. Hecate was worshipped as Propylaea together with Hermes, Propylaeos, the masculine, and um, Apollon, Apotropaeos. In Legina, so that was her main temple, a statue of Hecate was erected when a new city gate was being built. Um, in addition, there was also this really fascinating annual procession in Legina in honor of Hecate, where a female, a young female, a girl, a core, led the procession of keys. And a similar festival was also held um, in a town not too far away, um, Miletus. So there is all of this business about Hecate and gates. And I want to make two big points here. One is that in a lot of the like the remaining historical record, Hecate was like a a propolos, propylaea. She was a gate and associated with the gate to temples to other divinities. So the Acropolis, I know there's like Nike. Um, So all these temples at Eleusis, which was uh, Demeter and Persephone. So all these temples were dedicated to other deities, but Hecate and often accompanied by Hermes um, Mm. would be over, like would be the gatekeeper to these things. So that's a lot. I find that's a lot to take in. And it reminds me of like something I've bumped into a few times where I'm reading some text about Hecate and the author will have said, well, Hecate was a really minor goddess because she was liminal and, you know, she didn't have the big ass temple. She was at the gate to the temple. So that meant that she was less than or like that. um, There's this image of Kybele where Hecate and Hermes are on either side of her and they're quite small and she's like massive. Mm. And so that's something I actually, like, I think a lot about this. I was like, so is the liminal one, is the gate that gets you into like the mysteries of Kabbalah or the mysteries of Persephone or Nike or Apollo, like whoever, um, like, I don't see that as being less than the thing that you're going to 
because like if you can't get through the gate you're never going to get to that thing yeah yeah like i don't think she's like an ancient security guard i don't know what do you think well i think we have a tendency to downplay things that are related to transitions right like people yeah. can say the same thing about hermes like he was not very important he was just a messenger um, but obviously there's so much to unpack about Hermes and how he, how he impacts our lives. It's not an accident either that just like Hecate, he's also a road God, you know, and related to all the sorts of chants that you can have on the road. And I think, uh, the interesting thing about Hecate is, uh, that she, she contains both of these epithets, right? Like Enodia, but also Propylaea. There's a huge difference between being, you know, a road goddess and a gate goddess. Because when you're on the road, you're on a vein and you're vulnerable. You're the thing that's vulnerable there. Because there are so many things that might, you know, get into your space on that road. But when you're approaching a gate, like, you know, and you and I, we can talk about this a little bit more later, but, you know, you and I have talked about the secret name of Rome and how seriously, spiritually and materially, the fortifications of mm -hmm. cities were taken the gate introduces you into that city as a foreign body. So the fact that there's an entity at the gate, the fact that there's sort of like this idea of the gate as this a spiritual place in and of itself also invites this idea, which is related to growth mindset, that whatever you do as somebody who's entering this space, be it a city or a temple, you're going to change it. You're going to somehow contaminate it and mix with it. And, uh, and so that's, that's quite a, I don't know, that that's quite a significant thing, you know? Right. And I think it's so like foreign to how we view things today. Yeah. Yeah. Right? We're very point A to point B and those are the only things that matter. Yeah. And we don't even notice, like, I was thinking about this. I was like, I went, I was trying to think like, how many people do I know? who actually have some kind of like talisman or ritual or something like when someone comes into their home that they do, mm. you know, so like even having like an evil eye up by the door or you might like a little shrine to Hecate or having some kind of charm at the door. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I remember this being a lot more common that people would have something or even like if you're, um, like so inclined, like you might have like a crucifix mm -hmm. um, you know, some or, horseshoes. Or, or a horseshoe over the door. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, so this idea that there is like something to protect yeah. um, that threshold. So who crosses through it when they come into the environment, um, they'll bring um, only like good wishes into the environment, like that kind yeah. of protective energy um which is really important um and you know when we're talking about like ancient temples whether it's hecate or hermes who are serving this role as being the gate like that's a really central role yeah because whatever goes on in the temple is not going to happen um if they don't do their job the bouncer at the door the bouncer at the door like they're the ones that id you and so, you know like, <laughs> You it's can't true. get in without them. Yeah, and everybody knows that the bouncer is the most important person. Right? 
Okay. So it's like, we're talking about temples. I think we touched just a little tiny bit on the idea that, so I want to expand on it now. So they did this at temples, but that people also did this at their houses. So there's three kind of places this was done. Hecate um, and Hermes often, they were at these entrances to temples. So they were that kind of gate. They were at the entrances to cities and towns and different places within a city or town. And then people also did this um, for their own homes mm. and had that protection there. So this was very, you know, it was kind of very multi-leveled that it went yeah. right from these super sacred spaces to like the everyday home that Hecate and Hermes were the gates and they were the gatekeepers um, and so on. And to bring our friend Hesiod and his theogony uh, into the conversation, like we often do, to look for some kind of like, why might, why Hecate? Like, why would she potentially be chosen for this role as like, the Greek state evolves and later, you know, the Romans and so on. So there's this theory that Hecate like was a foreign, well, spirit, like that she was a foreign expression of the goddess. And so she was always going to be an outsider to the Greeks. But Hesiod wrote that she was super important and she was a Titan, which were like the old gods. Mm -hmm. And because she basically betrayed her family um she got to hang out with the the olympians and that even zeus gave her dominion over land sea and sky so there's this thing where she's like she's the gate between all these worlds she might not be the one who owns the worlds but because she is the gate between these worlds she has free reign in all territories um and this was also applied to like practical terms. And that if you read the passage from Hesiod describing Hecate, that, um, you know, she's not the, the kind of dark, mysterious goddess associated with witchcraft. She is very much this goddess, this spirit that um, you would want, like watching over your house and watching over your city and watching over your temple. Because I think that can be, going into the discussion of Propylaea, and I was thinking a lot about like, where do we kind of introduce this into this class? But, you know, for a lot of us who may think of Hecate as being like the queen of witches, and she's associated with sorcery, and pharmakeia, and, you know, Medea, Circe, and all this kind of scary stuff, that she is like the scary, like, how can she be the gate when it seems like she's kind of the scary thing that we would want whoever's in charge of the gate to keep out. But if we look at to what Hesiod had to say about her, it's like, oh yeah, she's lovely. Of course, we would have her watching over our houses um, because she, if we do the right things for her, she's gonna take good care of us. So I always think that's really interesting that there is this really complicated web about how people in the ancient Mediterranean even right up until today, how they understand Hecate. But there is this very kind of old thread in this one of the oldest sources where Hecate is named that sees her as this kind of like great mother who watches over cities and so on.
there's something what's coming to mind for me is integration. Like there's, there's regardless of whether the Greeks were really thinking of her as a foreign goddess or whether they were thinking of her in terms of like this Titan who gets this special accommodation <laughs> with the Olympians that other Titans don't get. There's some, there's something here about integration. Like if you've ever been an outsider anywhere and had to work your way in, and learn the rules and stumble and fall and kind of master the rules, for example, in the context of immigration or, uh, you know, like in a new workplace situation, there's something about like just these words, like performing fine sacrifices according to custom, like this implication that you enter the space, you're, you're going to agree to abide by the rules, right? Because every space has its own kind of context and its own rules of engagement. So there's also something about being an outsider and mastering those rules in a particular way that gets you a different kind of accommodation, right? Like people think of you as an insider, but you're remembered as this outsider in a way that's not dangerous anymore, in a way that's fond. And as somebody who can vet outsiders, you know, you can be trusted with that job. Oh, I really like that. And it, it just kind of like in a spiritual sense, it makes me think of like if we are working with Hecate, like in terms of healing or we want to just understand ourselves in the universe better, whatever it is, that as the gate, she is the one who can help us ex like explain to us what might happen inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because to best she knows that territory, like she knows yeah. all the territories there are. Yeah. So she's like, I'm here at the gate. I am the gate. You've got to pass through me in some kind of initiatory aspect, you know, of cleansing or whatever to get through. And I'm also like, even though I might be the gate, I'm also the guide because mm -hmm. I know what goes on in whatever I'm initiating you into. I know what goes on in there. Yeah, and she also knows the transition intimately, having done it herself in her more macro God way. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, yeah. So I yeah. think that really kind of links the idea, like, because what you said earlier about a node is about momentum and movement. And <clears throat> whereas, like, Propylaea, that's about stability. Like, gates don't go anywhere. No. So I just, oh, I think that's really interesting. Okay. We've done our Hesiod bit for today. We'll move Thank on. Thank you, Hesiod. Thank you, Hesiod. Okay, this is a bit of a hodgepodge of different sources that just demonstrate um, how Hecate was a, like a, a like a propylaea at different temples. So I think this one is from um, oh, so this article talks a lot about different statuary of Hecate that would have been like Propylaea, they would have been at gates. Okay. Okay. So this one here is really interesting because I like this. This is really intact, right? Like a lot of these are obviously really beaten up, but you can yeah. kind of see um, the triple Hecate around the polos. Sorry, wearing the polos. So even like wearing the different, like what she would wear in the statuary was indicative of like her role. Oh, I like this. This is interesting, right? Like, so and also the context, yeah, yeah, it gives you context of like why they would have placed her there and how they saw her. 
so for example like the fact that she has like this fancier dress on that and she has fancy hair like so she's kind of fancy um which is indicative of that she's in high esteem because if she wasn't in high esteem for example she wouldn't be wearing a long skirt she'd just have a short skirt like we've looked at different images of artemis who sometimes she was depicted wearing a short skirt which is about youth um and so on so you know like in most of these statues hecate is like wearing a long fancy dress which would have said a lot about her importance and also like that you're going into the temple so these would have been temple statues placed at gateways that you're going into the temple and it's you know like it is important like it's kind of fancy i know like when we go to church these days people just wear whatever they want to church for most, mm. most of the part but like when i was a kid like you had to get dressed up did you have to get dressed up to go to church when you were a kid uh no but every once in a while you know it, it was always charming to see those like like older couples for example and how they still you know they wore the hats and all those things and i think that's like also a form of like gatekeeping yeah like, right like so part of going through a gate into a religious experience it can be like dressing a certain way definitely definitely and that and signifies it, another threshold we're crossing over right but through dress yeah i also it, it kind of invites the question of whether she was dressed in a different way based on what she was in front of you know did that kind of explain the context of the space that you were about to enter it's so interesting so there's so much to learn from like studying these ancient statues yeah. and um and it's also i wanted to point this out this business of heck the so we did triformis the three-parted goddess a few months ago and not always was hecate depicted thus this is an example of that but as time went on it became more common for her to be represented that way and that a lot of times these statues when they were placed at thresholds whether it's temples the city the home they were um, triple formed because that way like she could protect in all directions it was like the best insurance policy yeah yeah that makes sense to me yeah and basically you know these ancient propylaea figures that were at these gates and entrances like they were like a type of insurance policy you know because I, I keep thinking about like how does this if this is an archetype that is important to us as humans like having protection for the home and a, having a spirit of protection for the home a spirit of protection for the places we hold sacred um and our towns and so on it's like what is the spirit of protection these days like you know and I keep thinking like insurance policies technically should yeah. but not really well hold on let me let me think this through well to start with in Italy and I know that we've talked about this before there's still that sort of like prophylactic aspect of having Medusa or sometimes a saint right. in front of a in front of a door or you know you have horseshoes the insurance policies thing is interesting because it makes me think of something Hillman said about how we've desacralized objects by making them all replaceable like we don't have relationships with them anymore so we don't take care of them and they don't take care of us and insurance policies in the way that you're talking about them kind of does the same thing right like because it kind of implies that 
the only protection that I'm really concerned about with regard to my home is, um, you know, if it's all destroyed, can it be replaced? Like, can I, will I have the money to replace it basically is the extent of our protection, which is interesting. From right, which point. isn't talking about the daemon or the spirit of the home. Yeah. Like, which is what these figures would have been working on that level, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But the spirit of the home was what was more important um, you know, yeah. there may be important objects in it, but like this, the spirit, like, what are we protecting? We're protecting the occupants, like in this kind of energetic sense, which I think we kind of really struggle with today. But ironically, when people get robbed or when their house burns down, they always, always talk about the feeling of violation. So there is this sense that the house has a spirit, you know, it's just not acknowledged in, in law or in our structure. It's so interesting, isn't it? And mm -hmm. then I would say like alarms, a lot of people have like home alarm systems. Mm -hmm. And again, like it's so that I think that's goes beyond like what an insurance policy would do. But it gives you that sense like, you know, when you come in and you do the keypad, um, you know, it's that same kind of thing, right? Like that this is supposed to be protective yeah. for myself and the occupants. Um, and, you know, it's like, well, I mean, it, it might be. Um, but, you know, so we still like there is that need that we have to engage with some form of protection for like our spaces and ourselves. And I think if we look at what these ancient statues would have been part of, it's very much part of like things that we still do today. Yeah. Yeah. This this feeling you, you want to feel safe there. Yeah. So you need this kind of gatekeeping energy or an alarm system. Or an alarm system. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of us don't go to like churches or synagogues or temples anymore. So this experience of like going into that kind of dedicated sacred space, I think, is really like something something that a lot of us aren't familiar with. Like I grew up going to one of those like modern Pentecostal churches, mm. and it was built in the '70s, so there was not none of this kind of business about it. Plus, Pentecostals don't like any of the statue business anyway. Yeah. But also trigger warning, I'm sorry about this, but in terms of churches or movie theaters or malls, now with sort of like the rash of shootings in the United States, like these spaces, I don't think that we realized how safe we felt in them until they stopped feeling safe to us. You know, like even schools, for example, those are places where you're supposed to feel safe and you really can't any longer. I think that is such, I mean, obviously like it's such a huge issue right all yeah. of the violence going on in spaces that we used to consider safe and you know i think that's a big part of like the bittersweetness of like exploring the spirit of propylaea is that yeah. you know like oh yeah so she's the gate and she keeps out the bad ones and the good ones get in and she's this kind of membrane and it's very mystical um but then there's also like a bittersweetness like if she is protecting these spaces then then there's a need to have them protected yeah yeah right there's a bittersweetness and there's also this like bittersweetness like you know to acknowledge that there is a need for protection that there are forces in the world that would seek to harm and i think yeah. you you just i know it's very upsetting to talk about but 
you know, when we see how our like safe spaces have been so violated by this violence, and in some cases how like people feel that, you know, like there are things that the government could do to restore safety and that the government is not willing to serve as like that kind of gatekeeper either. Yeah. But I also wonder what should that safety feel like? Because for example, in Paris, after the November 13th terrorist attacks, there was all this concern about religious spaces, right? Like that they could be targeted or attacked. And at the time I was living really close to the, the Paris mosque. It's this really, really big and beautiful space. And um, for about the year after, and I think this was the same with 9-11, like a lot of people will have this experience, there were just these armed guards. In Paris, it's very rare to see, um, to see cops or in, like to see army people with weapons, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's really, really rare. And I had to walk by these guys every day and every single time, like it just like, it made my heart jump into my throat, you know, like they, they, they're designed for safety. But uh, it just, uh, I don't know, it just made me feel anxious, you know? I think that's a good point because there's that aspect of someone who's a gatekeeper too, that, yeah. you know, you're not like we've mentioned earlier, like a bouncer, or if you are like a member of the police um, and that's your job to be that kind of gatekeeper in a space that you are like that gate between lawlessness and order, um, yeah. that there's an intimidation factor to it. I was in the supermarket the other day, actually in the city, um, and I turned, like, I wasn't paying attention to where I was going, and I literally almost crashed into the police officer that was uh, guarding the entrance to the supermarket. And it, like you said, and again, like, <laughs> it's still kind of rare, although it's increasingly common, that arm, there's armed, like, not security guards, but armed police um, mm -hmm. in supermarkets where I live. Yeah. And then I had an attack that I was like, oh, my God, I don't have a mask on. And, but then it was fine. I did not. Like, they did away with that. And then I was like, I did, they did away with it. But there was that moment of like, oh, the gatekeeper is here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that opens us up to the broader discussion about like, who are the gatekeepers in our society? Who are the propylaea in our society? And um, how can we be more aware of who they are and you know, just bringing that all into our consciousness as we get into this spirit of Propylaea, like really seeing where all these gates are all the time. Um, I like that. Yeah, there's so much to take on. Here's another ancient source. Um, this is Proclus's hymn to Hecate and Janus. So Hecate, so Janus, if you don't know who Janus was, two-headed god, um, interesting fella. So this is another example like of how ancient writers saw Hecate as this duality, like she can look in both ways at once. She's both like, I guess, the fear of the unknown and the one who protects you against the bad things that you might be afraid of. So, so she's like the spirit of like your longing for whatever it is you're longing for and she's going to keep you safe at the same time. So I, I really am deeply moved by uh, this hymn. And it's one, one of the first ones I actually encountered when I was learning about Hecate. And, you know, I just love this. Maybe we should just read it. You want to read it? Can you see it okay to read it? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you read it. I read the last ancient thing. 
Okay. Hail, many names mother of the gods, whose children are fair. Hail, mighty Hecate of the, thr the threshold. And hail to you also, forefather Janus, imperishable Zeus. Hail to you, Zeus, most high. Shape the course of my life with luminous light and make it laden with good things, drive sickness and evil from my limbs. And when my soul rages about worldly things, deliver me purified by your soul-stirring rituals. Yes, lend me your hand, I pray, and reveal to me the pathways of divine guidance that I long for. Then shall I gaze upon that precious light once I can flee the evil of our dark origin. Yes, lend me your hand, I pray. And when I am weary, bring me to the haven of piety with your winds. Hail, many names, mother of the gods, whose children are fair. Hail, mighty Hecate of the threshold. And hail to you also, forefather Janus, imperishable Zeus. Hail to you, Zeus most high. So I love this because this is like Hecate Propylaea, Hecate of the threshold. Um, and it's just so, it's such a beautiful prayer. Yes, lend me your hand. Um, it also has a, I don't know if you feel this way, it has an Our Father energy. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll have yeah. to do, maybe we can do a whole class on the Our, Our Father prayer sometime. <laughs> Not original. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, these the ideas in that prayer were already circulating in society at the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get into some more different, like different ways Hecate was understood as a threshold. So The Restless Dead by Dr. Sarah Ellis Johnson is such a rich resource on some deep, like this is a deep academic book. But one of the things I wanted to, to point out, like so we did a Nodia last month, um, who has her oranges, orange, oranges, has her oranges. She probably didn't have oranges. She would have pomegranates. That was like an autocorrect, but with your mouth. It was an autocorrect. <laughs> it's because we're looking at all this gold because gold is the color of the month. And I'm just like, oranges. Oh, or, um, <laughs> Anodia. <laughs> the salient. It's hot. We might. Yes. <laughs> This is we're not cool cucumbers like we are in the winter when we're doing these deep dyes. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, back to the story. Enodia, of course, was associated with girls, women, women who were considered unclean for whatever reason because they had children out of out of uh, marriage or I don't know they had an abortion or they were a widow who knew was sleeping with. I don't, there's all this big long complicated list hasn't really changed in some places much today, but all of this business um, and that in particular, Hecate was also associated with like these trans girls transitions. So not only were these anodic aspects where uh, women and girls who violated social norms, usually through no fault of their own, but there's mm -hmm. also this thing that um, Johnson talks about where um, Hecate was also a wedding attendant. Um, and this, she was like Artemis. So her and Artemis often, like they swap powers and they're very, you know, intertwined in a lot of cases. Um, yes. So one of them, like, so there's this whole thing about liminality associated specifically like Hecate Artemis with 
women's transition. So if the transition goes wrong um, and she ends outside of the norms of society, she's a spirit there. But if the transition goes well, she can be there to bless it. So there's this gatekeeping aspect really specific to girls' transitions. So mm. transition from being single to married, girl to mother, and so on. Uh, and then also the transition like of giving birth. So when you, you like when I widen the lens to be like, okay, Propylaea, the gate, it's a very physical thing. She's a, sh a shrine at a gate to a temple or so on. It's also like but this whole idea of Hecate's governance over transitions and the space, like the liminal space of the threshold between these transitions. Like, you know, she's not necessarily the one who the temple is dedicated for, but she's there to help you get in. She's not yeah. necessary, um, like maybe even like your primary house goddess or divinity that you are engaged with. But if you've got to make one of these transitions, you'll call on her. And she's the one, her Hermes are the one that's protecting the house. Do you know, like, was Hermes associated with, I know Hermes is associated with, like, keeping an eye on kids. Mm -hmm. um, but was he associated with, like, birth in any sense? I guess in some of the myths, he would have been, like, he was there to help people. He was a, in Crete, he was a fertility god, but I, like, I don't have the most details on this, but the thing that, that I know, like, because there, there are lots of ways to think about fertility, right? So I haven't looked at this recently, but I do know that in his context as fertility god, he was also the god who was in charge of, you know, we've talked about this before, heteric love, right? Mm -hmm. Like that kind of road trip best friend's love or companionable love. So I'm not sure if he was related to birth specifically in the context of fertility. I suppose so, because that's what fertility is about. Right. Yeah. But there's also like, there's the, there's the front end of fertility when it's about getting like, <laughs> no and then there's the back end of fertility when it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, like, because a lot of people are like, well, Hecate has nothing to do with sex. And it's like, however, there is this like almost 3000 years of historical record that she's associated with birth mm. and women's transitions and violating yeah. social norms around fertility. So, yeah, she's not like tantric sex goddess, but she's there on the other side of all of this business. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is also this is also a great context for talking now about like how we're starting to finally understand the way that even gender is a, like it's a social construct, but it's also a spectrum like, you know, you can sort of like transition through that as well or like I don't. I'm, I'm about to, I'm going to talk about this in a dangerous way, so I'm going to stop. But I, I really like this association here. Um, and this also reminds me of uh, menstrual stories, mm -hmm. because so often in menstrual stories, you require an initiator. And the initiator is usually not a kind character. Like the, the initiator is usually somebody really scary um, and dangerous. For example, that's where we get the convention of like the evil stepmother or the scary witch. So this, this idea of, you know, sort of like being the guidepost for those transitions and also more of the frightening aspects of Hecate, it like, it concords really nicely with um, the menstrual stories tradition. Yeah, it does. And it kind of, 
it makes sense because the one who can help you through the transition, um, they also have the power to make things go wrong because yeah. they're like the gate. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have talked a lot about these um, Hecateons or Hecateons or however you want to pronounce it or spell it in English. There's different ways about these protective things. So we won't get back into this, but there was a lot of them. I think that's the thing to say, like there, there's a lot of them that remain in different pieces, so. I like this. Okay. And this just refers back to that procession of the key thing, because we didn't do a deep dive into what that may mean yet. So the temple at Lagina, it, so there's an ongoing archaeological excavation of it, and they have found, I think, over the past couple of dozen years, like a lot of documents from this temple. So there's a lot of knowledge about what went on at this temple of Hecate at Lagina. And one of the truly fascinating things um, that was done at Lagina is this business where a young girl, um, like, so not a, like a prepubescent girl, like a tween, we would call her a tween today, um, yeah. that she would do the progression procession of the key. She'd be attended by like, um, more like Clydocus, the keepers of the keys, the, the, the priests, the officials. And she was usually like the daughter of like, the high priest or the high priestess like this was a family business mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. a lot of like it, the temple at Lagina, like so you would be the you might be the uh the girl who was the key bearer for that ritual then you would grow up to be a priestess in that temple and you probably were doing that role as a girl because maybe your dad or your uncle was one of the high priestesses of that temple so there was this whole kind of like it literally was like a family business. Mm. Um, but this whole like an, and I've written, I've read different reports about like what this could have meant and why they did this. Because I think it's kind of unique, this key bearing ceremony. And there's something about this procession of the key that really, I don't know, it just kind of has a, a thrum for me. Like it really makes, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, mm. But why would they do it? Well, um, keep their power, right? Yeah. And that, so then this just carrying on from, we're still in the Restless Dead and talking about Restless Dead, what uh, Sarah Johnson has to say. So what she says here that no, none of the sources explain what it was supposed to be doing. And so one of the things like, if we look at our own life, what we record and what we don't record, we don't record what everybody already knows. Yeah. Right. Um, so basically it must, maybe it was so important that they didn't need to write it down. Like everybody just knew what it was for and why they did it. Um, but it was, it had to have been used to unlock or lock something significant, right? So again, that's the procession of going to Hecate with the key to unlock mysteries, unlock the city, both. Um, so it's really, you know, just another one of those keys about this, the way the ancients understood Hecate's kind of governance over all kinds of gates. Yeah. 
This reminds me of a, God, there are so many things coming to mind, but this reminds me of the secret name of Rome, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but the key standing in for the secret name, this idea that a Rome had a name so secret that anybody who knew it could basically just take down the city. It was, it was taken really, really seriously. It was a name that was kept by the cult of Angerona, this really interesting goddess who's finger is always over her lips to indicate silence. She's a kind of, in a way, she's kind of a, a gateway goddess as well. But what I was thinking about was um, what you mentioned earlier, like this idea of, you know, like if people are not, if it's not recorded, it's because people generally already knew. Sometimes I suspect that in moments like this, these things kind of sneak into everyday life as conventions because they're not notable, right? Like, so you can't associate them with a cult. Like I think about um, issuing a special person in the city, the key to the city, you know, mm -hmm. the symbolic key or um, cord cutting ceremonies. So the convention of the cord cutting ceremony, for example, in front of a new building comes from ancient Egypt. And it was, uh, it was something that the Pharaoh had to do symbolically hand in hand with the goddess Seshat, who was uh, the goddess of architecture and astronomy. She's a lot like Hecate in the sense that she was the goddess of all kinds of things, you know, like mathematics, writing, all sorts of things, but specifically also these new thresholds. So when a new building was erected, the Pharaoh had to cut a cord symbolically alongside her to show that she was blessing this act. So I kind of wonder if the key had that same kind of significance, like even the fact that it's a prepubescent girl who has to do this, it makes me think of ring bearers in, a, in modern weddings, right? Like why does that have to be a young child? And, um, I don't know, like, it's not until you ask yourself this question that you're kind of like, I don't know, maybe you know, but I don't know. Like, why does that have to be a kid? Right. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's also something, some resonance of this. There's like a child is also symbolic of transitions, right? Like in these types of moments. Right, especially like a girl, you know, on the cusp of womanhood. Yeah, exactly. you know, So there's something there about, oh, she's transitioning too, but she's still pure. And so there yeah. might be that that purification aspect, like you said about, you know, the Egyptians, like you're getting a blessing on your new building. And yeah. we still do these things today, like, you know, a cord cutting ceremony, or like you said, you give somebody the key to the city, which is symbolic. It doesn't, they don't actually open things to the city. But yeah, um, like this idea that you can open the, I don't know, <laughs> like you can open the whole city. Like, know. so I guess that's like, the, it's, you're becoming a key holder of like the spirit of the city. Yes, yes. That you've crossed through some kind of gate mm -hmm. and yeah. you've earned this place like in this kind of inner sanctum, um, which only has a ceremonial purpose. It doesn't have any practical purpose. Yeah, but that does bring us back to the topic of integration. It means mm -hmm. you've integrated into something. You have the right to this key now. Okay, so now let's finish up mm. by stretching into um, the Chaldean oracles and Hecate's role as source or gate in the Chaldean oracles. So this is like deep philosophy um, and, you know, it's a lot to take in. You know, people will say to me every once in a while, well, I'd like to read the Chaldean oracles and inside I'm always like, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you know a little too well. Yeah. <laughs> You're better off with not knowing. 
so the Chaldean oracles are these collection of fragments that still exist. Um, even who wrote them, like even who wrote them is a subject of discussion. Uh, what they're all like, there's a lot. This is not like, this is not the Hecate Bible where every, well, I mean, the Bible's not like that either, right? Everything in the Bible is up to, for interpretation. Mm. But, you know, and so in this collection of fragments, so the existing fragments, but also in other ancient philosophers who referred to them, Hecate plays this really kind of complex and also sort of singular role as this kind of membrane, uh, which they use the moon to kind of symbolize that she's this membrane and that through her like comes the channels of corporeal life and contains within herself the center of the procession of all beings and it's like you read that you're like what? that's so vast it's so vast it's like what what does that even mean what does that even mean it's very enema mundi though it is very anima mundi and that in the Chaldean oracles that's what they're describing like Hecate is like the soul of the world and that this soul of the world is this thing that we all like pass through um to become us like it's like she births us um but she's also this membrane this gate that in this kind of way of thinking which is very like like the ascension of the soul and that like, you know, we are going, we're trying to become greater and ascend, you know, like the Chaldean oracles is really approaching like the Gnostic kind of like, or a Christian, what we might call a Christian idea that, you know, you do good things and you get to go to heaven. Like they're really, that is kind of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, so it's like, like language it's so strange like a procession is not something that you would typically associate with having a center you know it's by default transitional procession right but so she's this this is anima mundi which they thought the world soul was feminine but it's more complicated than that um and that they called it hecate uh, which is interesting right because you've got to think like the ones who were writing these texts, and we can debate, you know, like, was this purely channeled? Is this something that's purely mystical? Or is it contextual? And what was what they understood? Like, you know, we can debate that, but we'll never know the answer, obviously. Um, so it's like, but we were looking at all of these different ways that Hecate was understood, like as this kind of gate. And also the one who obviously like held the keys. Because if you're the gate, you had the power to let people in and out so you're also the key holder because the idea of hecate as key holder of the cosmos is a big one in the chaldean oracles and other related surviving texts as well i love this quote i love this quote so it's she so sends them forth like she's not the she so she's the source in a sense but there's another source like beyond her. Yeah, but she's also with you like through every gate of your procession, essentially. Right. Like, yeah, it's it's a very, it's a strange, it's, you have to hold two ideas at once in your mind. You know, this idea of like going forth from her, but also moving through her at different aspects of your life. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really that. interesting. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, like passing through the membrane, they kind of saw her as this membrane 
you know, that like she's both the membrane, but she's also like this force, like yeah. world soul force. So it's not like a like a fixed gate. It's almost like when you go through like the gate, she kind of comes with you. Yeah. You know, like as you are ushered forth into corporal, you know, physical form, um, that there's something that you carry with you. It's really fascinating. But certainly in the sense of like um ascension ideology, like whether you believe, you know, like in the kind of idea of like going to heaven or Christ consciousness or any of that business, like this is kind of similar to that in that there is this like Hecate is the source and she is also like a broader soul or consciousness that can kind of play um, Angelos, like a, a guide that can lead us um, up into the higher realms, which in the Chaldean oracles, they of course called the heavenly father, right? Like the, the greater source. It's very interesting. Um, it should also be noted though, that like, I've read different papers that are saying like, to call Hecate like female and the great father male, like in our kind of modern way of very like, well, not today, but you know, the way we kind of had like hard uh, gender role lines, yeah. like that's not how they would have seen it necessarily. That there was more, especially for the Neoplatonic thinkers behind the Chaldean oracles, like there was more fluidity um, that I read an article actually like written in the 80s and they were like, oh, Hecate would, would have been seen as bisexual. And I was like, oh, well, the language has changed since then. Yeah, language has changed a lot. But this was also quite common, right? Like we, we talk a lot about Philippine mythology and how the gods are, you know, like they're kind of fixed now as these particular genders, but they were understood as fluid and people who were gender fluid were understood as being closer to the liminal. Right. And also like closer to the gate, whatever the gate would be. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I wanted to include this. So this is actually from um, Sarah Johnson's dissertation on Hecate, mostly in the Chaldean oracles, like this more kind of like upper world ascension ideology Hecate um, that so she, this is just a, one of the footnotes, which I really found helpful in trying to decipher all of this business. So she's the mediating world soul that has a double aspect that she looks towards the physical and um, what we might call the emotional. Like she's yeah. looking. So it's more like she is this gate. She is the gate, but she's not she's not the emotion. She's not the emotions. She's not the thoughts. You know, she's not the physical world. She's not the deeper world. She can abide in both things, but she is somehow like she's the threshold between these things, all these things. She's the gate between them. Yeah. Um, and this is just, I wanted to talk about this idea. Like, and so this links to Hecate as like Hecate is the cosmic soul. So sometimes in the Chaldean oracles, people we'll translate it anima mundi as like world soul, meaning like the soul of the world, like in the alchemist kind of sense. Mm -hmm. But there's also this whole like the cosmic soul, which is to me very Star Warsian, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that she's like the force. 
So she's not like all the stuff in the world. She's like the force. On, she's like the gate that makes it all possible, basically. Oh, so this is so beautiful. Keyholder described aspects of Hecate that agree with his Proclus, ancient philosopher guy, uh, portrayal of her as having the ability to bind together and harmonize diverse elements, to close the boundaries of things within the cosmos, to bring individual souls to fulfillment um, as like a cosmic world soul. So there's this, this threshold aspect here, right? So what does a threshold or a gate do? It can delineate spaces, but it also joins spaces. Yeah, it creates coherence between spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love this. I love this. And the, it also it also comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this talk, which was that, you know, the Greeks understood what we thought of as consciousness as outside themselves. And it was always entangled with the material world. You had to always understand these two things at the same time. Right. Which is, you know, I think this that's what a threshold is always like, you know, it's like, well, there is the material and there is the deeper, the spiritual. Um, and even within ourselves, like there is like, you know, the the like the more emotional and then there is the more cognitive, like like that Hecate as an idea is neither one of these things, but she's like the force that make that conjoins them or delineates them, like that she's that space that she's like that gate between all things which makes me think of like um you know in terms of like even how we even like in terms of our own neurochemistry like everything has to cross a threshold like there is a gate like at all of our individual neurons and like something has to happen there has to be an action potential and that can trigger the gate to work and then the neuron will have a chain of events and you know good things will happen or bad things will happen and you know i think like a lot of us are so focused like on our anxiety or our depression like there's all of that business like but that really functions on like these neuronal gates yeah that yeah. set off this whole chain of events this makes me think too about i think we've all had that experience of being confronted by a decision that traps us between emotions and logic and we don't you know we don't know what side to fall on and uh and it's that feeling that it has to be this combination of both but the murkiness of that place like the discomfort of that is a is the place where we don't want to sit but it's kind of the place where we kind of sense that the answer is like sort of like being pulled between these two things oh yeah it's so true or yeah. like i mean i could just totally like geek out on the neurology of this like the corpus callosum that joins the two half of our brains if that is severed we can't function like they used to do this to people um i think it's a treatment for epilepsy and other things but if you sever the connections between our brains, like we literally can't function. And so that's like the gate that joins the two halves of our brains. Oh, that's fascinating. That cohesive gate. Right. That cohesive gate, even though nothing is done to either half of our brain, if those connections, those neurons that connect the two halves of our brain, if they're severed, there's no like straightforward or reason organically that yeah. we that our brains couldn't do the tasks without the connections 
but we can't do the task without the connection. So the gate is also the connector. Yeah, right? that, that sort of implication that these two spaces require a symbiosis as well. Exactly. So there's all that business about gates too. We are, of course, reach the, the point in our class where we run into the, the witches and the scarier side of Hecate. Um, so we're doing a deep dive on Medea um, and her bittersweetness, her, the gates she crashed and was dragged through all the gates in Medea's life, like all the troubles she got into. So, you know, when we talk about Hecate, one of the most fascinating aspects of her, it's like, so we have philosophy and we have this and we have that. And then it's like, and we have um, a lot of like plays and curse tablets and so on that say that she was very much also this kind of scary uh, spirit that you summoned uh, when you needed some dirty deeds done dirt cheap kind of thing. So we're going to talk about Medea and we'll be talking about um, like Hecate and how these authors of these plays, like what was really, what might've been going on in their heads that they yeah. made Hecate this kind of spirit. I look forward to that conversation. That's gonna I be look really forward to that conversation too, because I, one of the things like when, I don't know, when you're like learning about these ancient historical sources it's like but euripides was writing himself a play right like it wasn't like it was meant to be taken literally yeah it's like taking shakespeare literally right um and it's like but hesiod was writing something different it was like an index mm. um you know what i mean so it's like if you know the nature of the document you're talking about it it really helps to contextualize um you know what's going on yeah 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 and i did a i did some research on that like the the sort of context in which euripides wrote the play and uh, as you as you mentioned like this this question of why medea kills her children mm -hmm. and why he why he constructed the play that way so that'll be that'll be a good conversation, I think. So that's coming up, I think, on August the 12th, and we're going to do it live just because it's summer. Yes. Uh, we're doing it live for a treat. All right. Thanks so much for watching. Um, as always, we're looking forward to your comments and thoughts about this deep dive into Propylea. Thanks, everyone.